1: 18 plus.
2: Hello and welcome to Castle of Horror, the show dedicated to horror movies and awesomeness. This week we look at the 1978 film Martin, directed by George Romero. Bear in mind, if you haven't seen today's movie, we're going to be talking about it from the perspective of horror fans who have seen it, so warning, spoilers ahead. From Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Jason Henderson, author of the upcoming Young Captain Nemo series from Five and Friends McMillan Books. With me from Austin is Tony Salvaggio, tech director at Rooster Teeth Studios, lead singer and bassist of the band Deserts of Mars, and lead guitarist. Of the band, rise from fire. Say hello, Tony.
3: Howdy,
2: howdy. Also in Austin is Mr. What was
3: that noise? <laughs> That's of my table. You cut that out if you want. <laughs> <That's> my gong <laughs> I'm going to introduce myself
2: no, it, was, it, was <laughs> this, it was a spectacular clap boom alright also in Austin is Mr. Drew Edwards editor-in-chief of horrormovies.net writer for Rockabilly Online and creator and writer of the long-running comic Halloween Man say hello Drew hello baby hello clappa clappa <laughs> and finally also in Denver as always color the one and only attorney, Julia Guzman of Guzman Immigration of Denver. She's also a member of the improv acapella vocal group in Harmony's Way. Say hello, Julia.
4: Hello.
2: <laughs> hello. Okay. Martin, I really loved that, though. I said, you know, hello, Tony. He goes, hello. And then there was, there was this, this, this Zeus-like thunderclap. Boom. Okay. <laughs> Martin is a 1978 American horror film written and directed by George Romero. It stars John... Amplis or Amplis, 27, but looking like and portraying a teenager named Martin, who may or may not be a vampire, but is definitely a serial rapist and murderer. Martin, this is this is one that we are doing because we wanted to uh, we wanted to to pay some homage to George Romero, who we lost very recently. So. Um, let's do it this way let's do the reverse of last week let's get opening thoughts from drew then julia then tony and then i'll go so uh uh drew opening thoughts george romero's martin
5: i like this movie quite a bit i think it's one of romero's more memorable non-zombie movies because if you talk to people it's funny it's like they think that he only did zombie movies because his zombie movies are so famous i don't think this is a very fun movie it's sort of like hanging around with a psychopath for an hour and a half yeah. so it's not exactly a pleasant view but I do think it's an excellent film and I do think it is one of the earliest if not it is one of the earliest movies to my mind to really kind of deconstruct horror archetypes and we saw more and more of this once we got into the 80s but this really seems like a like a pretty pretty good prototype particularly you know this is this is Romero turning his sort of skeptical eye to to vampire tropes and saying, well, if vampires were real, they would be sexual predators and not in a sexy, you know, Frank Langella kind of way. And if uh, Van Helsing was real, real, he'd probably be a batshit crazy old man that you wouldn't want to hang out with. And so it's a very uh, cynical Romero take on this so i think that there you know this actually says a lot of interesting stuff about the vampire genre that later i think a lot of people kind of zeroed in on it so it's sort of an early postmodern horror film so i think you, you have to kind of take a look at it but good film not an easy movie to watch i think that has to be stressed a lot like the violence is very very uh real uh if, if if such a such a thing can be said about uh, a movie like this, like the violence has a reality to it that even Romero's zombie movies uh, don't, because the the violence in those movies ends up being kind of uh, car- cartoonish by like comparison. Mm-hmm.
2: <clears throat> wow. Okay. Excellent start, uh, Joya. So I'm I feel certain this is probably the first time you've watched Martin. Uh, what are your thoughts?
4: Yes. Um it is definitely the first time I've watched Martin. <laughs> um I agree with Drew that it is uh disturbing and well and well done but not and not pleasant to watch. Um I didn't enjoy it for that reason. I don't like it because it is just really dark and depressing and uh, and it's very real, I mean, I feel like a lot of the things that happen it reminded me of Henriette portrait of a serial killer It was very mm. uh, authentic it's all the things that he goes through where it just nothing ever is, is goes smoothly, and you know it's all awkward, and it's just. I don't know. I just thought it was well done in that regard, but I definitely didn't enjoy it because I don't like. It made me feel very uncomfortable. So I guess if that's what he's going for, then that's certainly achieving what it's supposed to achieve. Um, it is actually George Romero's favorite of his own films, according to many people. So he liked it as well. Um, but yeah, I think uh, you know, I think it, it achieves what it wants to achieve if that's what it's going for.
3: Fantastic, <clears throat> Tony. w what, what are your thoughts here? Um. Yeah, I'm kind of firmly in the middle uh i enjoy but it does i think it's it's a really excellent deconstruction um i think there's a lot going on here that romero is doing uh but like julia the more realistic it is i it's not one i'm gonna be watching a lot if ever um again even though i think there's a there's a lot to the time period and the context of this kind of vampire movie that's not exactly a vampire movie um, it all by the way it did have an awesome VHS cover too oh yeah uh, it always caught my eye at the video store um it's disturbing and done really well like he does a lot of things that uh, you know shoots very realistically I yeah I, I think it's a great piece of history but not one I enjoy going back to I guess that makes sense no
2: understood uh, for, for my part, you know i i really did i'm glad that we chose this movie mainly because we've already done a couple romero zombie pictures uh you know it was to me a, a romero movie that we wanted to do i really wanted to do either this which i had never had occasion to see or uh season of the witch which i definitely had have those two movies are definitely of a piece they're they are um they're, they're horror-tinged films where Romero is basically doing these very interesting, dark little takes on American life. And, you know, both of them take place in and around the suburbs and the cities among the middle class and the working class of, of uh, you know, of his native pennsylvania and i love the way that this movie and season of the witch as well i love the way that this movie just observes the town you know observes the way these people live and what their houses look like and what the grocery stores and and you know all of that i'm with Joya about the way it's very much like henry henry portrait of a serial killer um you know, I like I like this movie a lot. I'm, Tony, I'm totally with you that, having said that, it's not like I would watch this movie over and over again. I'll watch Brides of Dracula over and over again, but I really do appreciate the way this movie is done. It, it um, you know, it impresses me. It leaves me with a lot of questions. Um, I find the, the murders in it to be really intriguing and scary and often kind of horrendously funny because they tend to just go batshit bonkers wrong when he, he, you know, he never, he never sort of stylishly pulls anything off. So it's, it's cool. I, I, I'm glad that that we chose this movie to look at. All right. Uh, Rather than work our way through the entire plot, what I think would be worthwhile, um, I'll explain really quickly what the movie is basically about. And then I want to get straight up to the question of, of um is martin in fact a vampire. So uh here's the deal. It is about a young man who comes to a little town uh in you know near Pittsburgh where he's going to be living with somebody who, call, who he calls his cousin but is actually more like a great uncle. He's going to live in this in this little house uh, in a little town in Pennsylvania, where his uncle runs uh, a grocery store, and uh, we see early on and throughout the entire film that Martin, who appears to be about 19 years old, although he's actually played by the nearly 30 John Amplis, who looks very very young, um, he kills people. You know, he. Uh, we open with him. Murdering a lady and uh, let 's talk a little bit about that first killing, the thing that opens the whole movie and then I want to I want you guys to use that to segue into the question that I think is central to the whole film: is Martin in fact a vampire? Um, what is he? What is the truth but uh, uh, Julia. Um, because I, I know that you found it very, very emotional but but uh uh you're not you're not so triggered that you can't talk about this. Uh tell us about the opening uh attack.
4: Right. Well so, the, okay, he's on the train, uh, and he has already targeted a woman that he wants to, um, you know, assault and, and kill and rape and all that. And um, so he goes, he picks his, the lock into her room with his, he's got a syringe full of whatever drug he uses, and he's going to go in. So he opens the door, and as he's opening it, he fantasizes in black and white that she is in a beautiful gossamer ga- nightgown, and she just opens her arms and, she looks beautiful and perfect in her bed, and everything's perfect. And beckons to him. And when he opens the door, instead there's, you know, just like anybody else's, because um, it's a, it's a sleeping uh, car, it, just like anybody else's hotel room or, or or any other place that they would be sleeping. There's crap everywhere, and she's actually not there. She's in the bathroom. So the toilet flushes. She comes out. She's wearing a, a mask, you know, like a, like, you know, like mud mask, and um, and she's, you know. Blown nose and she's got a robe on and there's it's nothing like his fantasy of her being all sexy and beautiful and um and then she's shocked to see him of course and then he uh starts to try to rape her and also stab her with the needle uh with the syringe but like she's screaming and it's it's awkward and it's horrible and i actually i was pretty annoyed that about the screaming because i felt like um somebody would have come like i don't know why nobody comes to see what's going on with the screaming because she screams a lot so I feel like that was um, a mistake um, on the part of the film. I think he should have immediately been able to quiet her so she wasn't screaming because I, I think that's an, oh, oh, like that just didn't make any sense to me. It kind of told me out. But the rest of it, like just the fact that it's such an awkward and awful scene where he's just, he can't overpower her because he's not physically bigger than her. So she's just kind of, they're just kind of wrestling around and she's screaming and they're falling over. And he's telling her that he'll be fine once the medication kicks in. You know, it's always, he always is very careful with the injections and everything. And it's just gruesome and awful as he you know, proceeds to rape and then kill her in this train car. And um, it's just, I mean, it was, like, so upsetting to me because you really could just see this be... Jason and I were talking about whether or not we identify with this character. I don't identify with him at all. Like, there's no part of me that identifies with him. I always identify with the victim. But I think that's because I'm a female, whereas Jason said you can't help but be pulled in and identify with it. So I'll let him talk about that. But I thought that was interesting because I just... There was nothing... About that, as far as the whether or not he's a vampire, obviously he's not the kind of vampire that has fangs because he has to cut people to be able to drink from them. Oh, that's what he does—that he cuts her and drinks her blood. Mm-hmm. Um, he, the George Romero talked, had originally written the script to be an older vampire and who was like kind of trying to make it, make it, make a go of vampirism in, in the modern day but then when he saw this kid on the stage he decided to rewrite it for him um, and so i believe he is a vampire and that, that those flashbacks that he's having are actually flashbacks to a previous time but that's my my take on this so we can talk more well, about that i i want to
5: i want to say something about like the shifts between like the two styles cuz that's something that mm-hmm. happens throughout the movie i mean y- there is the way you can take it which is the way julia Took it, which is, you know, maybe these are him remembering things or, you know, like like something about his past kind of intruding on his present. But I also think the fact that when, when he has these visions, they're in black and white and they're done in this more gothic style, I think that is him commenting on Universal. And I think that is him commenting on Hammer and the sort of like sexy vampire trope where the woman wants, you know, wants to be attacked and you know then he shows us the reality of what it would be like to be assaulted Mm -hmm. and so i think that you know it's no accident that the character is named Martin which is the same name as Renfield orderly in the Bela Lugosi Dracula like Romero knows exactly what he is doing you know he he you know we we talked a lot about um when we did um only lovers left alive about how it seemed like somebody trying to deconstruct the vampire genre but was not overly familiar with horror films this is what it <laughs> <laughs> this is what it looks like when someone who really knows the genre starts to take a scalpel to it. And I, 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 you know, you ask the question of whether or not he is a vampire. My response to that is twofold. One, this movie positions a sort of folkloric vampire mythology where there are these families that have the, the quote unquote accursed in their bloodline and that they are born and they have to drink blood. And, you know, it is your duty to either save these people's souls or destroy them but you have to look after them to a certain mm-hmm. point and martin is one of these um and martin himself constantly goes on well there's no no magic there's no magic there's stuff that appears magic and then he says it's just a disease so that's how he looks at it but the two central he figures says he's 84 years old he says he's, he's 84 years old he does believe he does not believe exactly the way Cuda. His cousin believes, that he believes nonetheless. So the two central figures of this movie, you have Kuda and you have Martin. And they both believe that Martin is a vampire. And while that question is open-ended, I still say if these two except that Martin is a vampire. That is the reality we are working off of. Right, right.
4: because this guy, this older man would have known him his whole life and seen they never aged, is my thought.
2: Exactly. That would be true. Exactly. Tony, you were gonna say something. What, what? But
3: there's, what I like is it could be ambiguous. You can also take it as this whole family with the exception of- uh, Christine, the, the, the Christine, daughter. <laughs> is deluded and they've kind of put martin up to this delusion because he could also just be a sociopath who sees these things in black and white how he would want them to be and romanticizes in his head that this is the way reality is um and because but i like that it's open-ended he could actually be 84. But you yeah. could also just be a messed up kid in a messed up family who this disease is, you know, psychosomatic. Um, and that's one thing that makes this movie interesting and not just, oh, look, there's a lot of really real, realistic rape and murder. And so that, that's the part I think that elevates it is the question of, is he a vampire? Is he troubled? I personally, I'm with Julia. I, I can associate with a lot of outsiders in movies i don't associate with martin at all because he's a creep and a rapist <laughs> like, well i so, so i want to i want to try to uh, uh you know he's a vampire maybe in which i guess that's what he has to do kind of but yeah, yeah none of it's a thing where i'm well, like oh you okay. know yeah, well i get that he's an outsider like none of that works There's for this, me there is there
5: is this whole <sighs> The whole movie has this layer of sadness, oh, yeah. it. And Martin is an incredibly sad character. So I can, you know, I can relate to him on that level, but I don't really feel bad for him. Like the same well, thing.
4: Like, is is, is, yeah, let's what, defend defend his position that I <laughs> that I put on yeah. him.
5: <laughs> well I, I
2: you know. really quickly I, I I just wanted to mention um, two things. But before I get to the association question, uh, you said something really interesting, Drew, which was about how uh, those fantasies, the black and white fantasies, are a commentary on horror movies. But I just, I just want to—you're totally right. But I just want to point out that, particularly, this movie being shot in 1970, in the summer of 1976, when when you see those women in um, with their arms out, typically, and sort of floating, and there's a slow mo kind of thing, and it's black and white the thing that pops into the heads of any human being watching this in 1976 is dark shadows because we watched and it's been a couple of years now, but we watched like the house of dark shadows and night of dark shadows and both of those, which were made in 1970, you know, just a few years earlier um, had a lot of that open armed, floating, weird Gothic heightened romanticist stuff. And, 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 so you know when he's wanting to draw romero is wanting to draw a uh, a contrast with pop culture it seems to me that that um dark shadows is like like foremost on everybody's mind at this point um because it's only a couple of years after that show went off the air and you've had two movies very recently but um uh to my uh, – all, all I was saying is that there is no other main character here besides Martin. Uh, it, it, so it very much is a thing like Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer where, where
5: well, we are meant we to – Well, we say f- that Henry sort of Portrait of a Serial Killer is like this, if we're being fair?
2: True. That is absolutely right. I mean, the, but the, the experience that you're going through is as – a, as a watcher – is that you have no one else to hold on to there's no other main character you know there's there's no one to uh to try to follow through the different um you know sections of the script or anything there's no arc other than that which martin experiences and it um uh you know so you have no choice so that was my only point is that he's the main he's the protagonist you know he's the main character you know so it's what's weird is that it's not very normal. We have anti heroes all the time, but it is very unusual for a main character to be a straight up rapist murderer the way that Martin is. Um, and he's not even, um, this is going to sound funny, but he's not even intended to be an enticing, sexy, or particularly seductive uh, version of any of that. He's just this guy, this dweeby, drippy, sweaty, limp skinny beige wearing guy wandering around and occasionally attacking people it it is it is so strange to 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 go oh so this is the guy that we're going to follow around um
5: but i i think that is romero's response to to dracula like i think like you know romero you know, has seen all the those movies. He's seen all those characters, you know, the the, the variations and everything. And, you know, he's stripping away the cape yeah. and the fangs and, you know, the slicked back hair and the castle and everything that would make vampirism cool. Yeah. He's taking it down to, like, a guy that's a delivery boy at a work... You know, he's making it working class. You know, it's no yeah. longer this, this but, elitist thing. Yeah. And but he's yet, saying, even... this guy's pitiable. He's pitiable. Yeah he's pathetic and I think that's what Romero ultimately thinks about you know the character of Dracula like I think that there's like that cynicism is like if this guy was real he'd be a fucking pathetic loser you know (laughs) I I don't think it's like I think huh
4: He's giving Martin, though, the fantasy that he is that cool uh, Dracula character. Although, ultimately,
5: Martin knows that he's not that because he's critical of vampire movies. Because when he calls into the the radio, uh, even though he calls himself the Count, he knows, like, he's like, oh, it's not like the movies. It's not like the movies. You have to be careful. And yet, in all
4: of his memories and his fantasies, That is how it is. He's just like in the movie. Well,
5: I mean, who would you rather be, this guy or Bella Lugosi? Who would you rather be, this guy or Christopher Lee? I mean, it's not really a tough debate. That's
4: my point. Yeah,
5: that's
2: my point.
4: Is that even he thinks that he would like to be, like he would like for it to be like it's like in the movie? Yeah, I think
2: he's even frustrated by that. Like one of the things that struck me as the most realistic thing for an actual human. weak person, a, an actual human who, who in fact might be weak, but also inclined to be abusive is when he, he, you know, one recurring thing is he calls into this talk radio guy and just talks and they love talking to him because he's, he, he just talks openly about about being a, a stalker and a vampire but he says this interesting he goes all those movies are lies because you can't make women do anything it is the it is it is the weirdest he goes <laughs> he's you know he's like i really he's expressing i wish i could just make women do stuff but i can't you know and that's fascinating to me oh you know what else we watched come to think of it that is around the same period count Yorga a va- vampire baby that was just a couple of years before this as well i mean you know we forget but but uh 1976 the early 1970s is kind of a hot period for uh some gothic vampires coming around you know it, it's uh and and as uh drew you pointed out frank langella that's like one year after this you know so that's still very much in 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 people's minds uh I, okay i think
5: okay. that like i don't think you can You can have like i said i think romero is ultimately saying something you couldn't put all of what all the scenes which are essentially rape and murder scenes in this without that being that critical eye i think a lesser movie this would just be some crappy grindhouse exploitation film it's the fact that it is making you think about the other vampire movies that you watch and what the subtext of that might actually be yeah that makes this artful instead of just trashy.
2: Okay, I want to talk about the 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 next really interesting crime that he commits. Well, you know, Martin Martin comes, uh, you know, and he's staying with his uncle or whatever he is, his cousin, who says, uh, "I'm going to save your soul and then I kill you, but for now, you're going to work for me in my grocery store." And while he's kind of starting a flirtatious relationship with this uh, housewife, he meets this other housewife. Um, who lives and by in a the really way, pretty, back up a
4: second, place? Back up for a second yeah. and say you got to say that the cousin thinks he is Nosferatu, and yet he's going to give him a job delivering groceries to the houses of, <laughs> of housewives who are presumably home by themselves. I'm like, is that really the best idea if you're wanting this guy to not kill people? He
5: does He does tell him that if he takes anybody from that town, he's going to drive a stake through his heart. True. Yeah, but no, I mean,
4: it still <laughs> seems like it's a little un, you know, unwise. That's,
5: that's and totally, right. totally true. You're right. By
2: the way, how cynical is George Romero about Housewives? I mean, oh my God. When you put this movie with Season of the Witch, you have a guy who is deeply skeptical of the American institution of marriage but
4: well, he's watched a lot of porn
2: yeah well oh, I mean, I think also, and yet,
5: and yet he married the 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 girl that plays the the granddaughter in this so obviously that's that skeptical yeah
3: yeah well I, I think there's a lot of this going on i mean we've been to enough weird wednesday i think there's an overall idea of the america's falling apart the there's a certain malaise in a lot of these movies especially the genre movies that yeah that's a very similar theme and you've got things like you know the rolling stones are putting out stuff like mother's little helper you know there's a lot in that
2: yeah that's a good point
3: but there's a lot of commentary on that kind of destruction of the nuclear family that's going on around this time and i think it's really a reaction to that i mean yeah maybe he's super cynical and everything but i think it's also hey here's what we're feeling in the 70s and i
2: i think you're right I, I like what you said about America falling apart. That ho- because he really does. This is the most verite movie that uh, because you know Night of the Living Dead could take place on another planet since so mostly. You know, even though it does give us a good look at the late '60s, it's so enclosed. It feels like a stage play many times. This, you know, the camera just walks. It walks around this town. The town. This is not even the poorest of towns. It's just a regular town, you know. But everything's old. Everything's run down. Uh, the the grocery stores are pretty rough. The the you know the people who live farther out of town live in some nice nice houses. But uh, basically in town, it's you know, it, it, Martin's not poor. They're not on the streets or anything. But this is uh, basically all of America, he seems to be sailing, saying. It's just kind of cold and, and crumbling. Um, you know,
3: yeah um, what struck me as I was watching it, it felt like it was filmed. There's a certain look. Maybe it's just a budget. I'm not sure exactly. Film stock etc it looks like stuff that was filmed for pbs that went directly to pbs that i remember from this time period and again i'm not you know i'm not positive it's not just hey that happened to be the film stock they're using etc but uh it felt very much like a a pbs sure i know exactly what you're talking about there's a certain cast to things uh the way light looks the way shadows look the way color looks um if i i don't know if that would make any sense for people who didn't grow up during that time period and would see you know if you only had a few channels on your tv and you watched a bunch of stuff on pbs but it really really has that look and it just i kept coming back to that as i was watching it
2: yeah yeah and therefore if you had seen a lot of those things these sort of You know, a a lot of those uh, documentaries that would be on about different things going on in in neighborhoods and and, uh, you know, local corrupt party officials and whatever, you know, walk around the neighborhoods that grain everything about it, you know. And, And apparently the whole eastern seaboard is basically in damp fall all the time. I mean, it is never summer in these in these pictures. You I think therefore then you would watch this movie and go, yeah, that's my neighborhood. I recognize right. it. it. Well, that's the
4: thing yeah. is, like when I was saying, it's so real and uh, it's so ugly. Not just the, not just the the murders and the race, but the everything. It's there's so much ugliness of you know. He's just even when he's coming into the town, he's looking around. He looks up and he's well, he sees the guy on the toilet reading the paper, and then he sees like some you know um, dead trees and and <coughs> sneakers on wire and just like everything that is ugly, you know, and just uh, nothing.
2: Yeah.
4: <laughs> It's so the true. opposite of like Halloween where we're seeing all this beautiful suburbs, you know, and everything is just so pretty, pristine. And even even um he is like magical, you know, in that movie. Um it's like my, Michael Myers is just magical how he is able to get from one place to another. Everything is so smooth. It's just so it's complete opposite, you know, of how of this film where he's just like you said, everything goes bad, and whatever whatever can go wrong yeah. It's the Murphy's Law of, of serial killers
3: i would like yeah. i would like to find and i'm sure there's been some studies on it why and again this is from my early childhood as well why in the 70s was everything that horrible brown and that yeah. weird <laughs> that weird avocado meets lime
4: and, and mustard color yeah.
3: like yes. why those three colors they're yeah. horrible and no, you i know you, you there's you have to notion look at a that... few polaroids Are like slightly reddish tinted photographs from go, Jesus I know Louise, it's, like, it's this crazy it's, and it's just so like,
2: weird Ugh, i don't understand yeah. it why Ca- cars are colored that kitchens people are like ah oh, you know what what this kitchen should look like baby poop yellow that's what would be yeah. good for this
3: kitchen. well the fridges are brown like I'll, i just the more i i started watching this movie the more and i've seen it you know you see a bunch of stuff from sarah it's not but we've finally gone i Probably part of it is just where he's filming. But yeah. there's none of the mod stuff you see from, like, Italian movies or, you know, where often there'll be, like, a bright red or, you know, white or whatever. We're firmly in America where everything yeah. during this era is a, is brown, yellow, and green.
2: Yeah. And it's some amazing.
3: shade or variety of that. <laughs> some slight hue off from that. At least in suburbia. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Oh man, Why? I I still to this day even wonder. the even the
2: nice places, well, you know, and and like I say, this movie I think goes really well with Season of the Witch, which is which he did just a couple of years earlier than this, and both of them, Season of the Witch, it takes place in a nice house. You know, she's a, the main character there is very much like the housewife that Martin starts an affair with in in this movie. But even so, it's the same ridiculous color schemes. It's it's everything. But in that one, you see a lot more. You see the whole kind of neighborhood. You see the other housewives that come over. And, and you know, you, you kind of get that, look, people are getting by in this world. That's the other funny thing. Do you remember how when we talked about uh, Poltergeist, the remake? and we said that the funny thing was given how it paid lip service briefly to the fact that he was out of work nevertheless there was like no sense of these people kind of making it in a world of economic anxiety you know that these houses are huge that that house they buy is ridiculously large this place feels lived in you know all these old these ladies who come to do their their shopping at the grocery store you know they're living in tiny houses they know how it all works they're all making it um i i just i really love this this little world but i wanted to mention okay the f- most amazing interesting like great filmmaking piece and the kind of thing that i think romero should be should be remembered for is a sequence where martin decides he likes this hot uh uh, housewife in a neighborhood that he's been delivering to. I think he may have delivered to her once. He he kind of uh, he scopes it out by going up and pretending to be deaf so that he can see who lives there. And he sees the hot housewife and the husband. And so he goes. All right. Later on, I'm going to rape and kill this woman. So he goes, and 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 it becomes like Ocean's Eleven. He goes and he buys a radio that he can use to manipulate the garage door opener so that he can break in to attack this woman when her husband leaves town. And then the mo- and then the scene goes ridiculously bonkers. Uh, Tony do, do you want to like explain like goes what goes wrong with his very clever plan to break in and kill this
3: woman? Well, everything kind of goes wrong. I mean, first it doesn't happen the way he pictures it is black and white fantasy land. We bust in <laughs> and then there's a, there's a guy there. You know, she's not just languishing waiting for uh, you know, a kid, a delivery boy, to some dear <laughs> from her housewifeness. And then ends up that the guy, you know, he's got he's may or may not has figured out how much medicine to to give some a woman to knock her out. Yeah, but he definitely has not put enough. Or a kind of like, you know, fit, uh, you know, older guy. And so yeah. there becomes this whole strange cat and mouse. Also, you know, a lot of this only works in the 70s because he, you know, he injects the guy, the guy's like, hey, what'd you do to me? Um, goes around and he's arguing, and they're, he's arguing with the woman, like, why don't you call 911? And she goes, "What's the number?" Like,
4: (laughs) no, she's like, "You're not not supposed to be here." I can't. I don't want to. I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to call the cop. I don't want the cops to come and them to find out that I'm cheating on my husband. Yeah,
2: (laughs) yeah. And then they argue about whether nine one one will trigger the cops or just the general emergency.
3: Yeah, it's horrible. It's this whole terrible, you know actually a realistic in a lot of ways conversation yes because when stuff goes bad all of the all of that stuff where you think rationally oh i would do this that's bs and anybody who's had any kind of anything happen knows that all that goes out the window when you're panicked um you know the guy's going around and martin's trying to get back to you know he's doing this thing where he's trying to get back to get the meta. You know to get the knockout stuff whatever poison he has uh whatever chemicals he uses to knock people out um and you know he's he's trying to go back and then try to lure the guy and then he's messing with the phone like taking off the hook and and uh using the numbers to you know make it beep so it sounds like the phone's going crazy oh God. and disrupting yeah. the call uh and yes yeah, this whole eventually he locks the guy out who has to come back in um, and has stabbed him twice by then. So the guy's actually succumbing to the medication. The whole sequence is decently realistic because it's desperate. Everyone's desperate in all of the events. Um, And it's, disturbing as hell and it would it it would play out that way in a police blotter you know yeah. you would you can picture this and then you know and then it looks like he got stabbed again and then you know this happened and oh he was outside but then he came back in we see his footprints all of that stuff you could see as a write-up yeah and then end up on some true crime newspaper thing, you know.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I can uh, see seeing this in a in one of those shows and going, wow, that's amazing. I can't believe all this stuff happened after this guy broke into
3: this house. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it culminates uh, with him killing her as usual, but it's Oh no, he doesn't uh, kill her. You he, he remember this is the oh, yeah, this is the thing he story. um
2: he is going to kill her. But then when he, when everything goes wrong, he's shocked to find that there is a lover there instead right. of her being by herself. And so when he winds up, he decides he's going to kill the boyfriend. And he says something weird that I don't understand, but I'll take it for whatever. It means something to him. He goes, well, because there was another guy here, I can't kill you. I think that means um, there would be a witness who could finger me as the killer. But he ends up killing well, He kills the guy. Why? Why? It is that he can't kill her unless there's something else, unless there's like this whole ritual that he feels he has to perform involving, uh, you know, you know, raping her and bloodletting her and then killing her and he can't do all that stuff. And so he's not gonna, I don't know. It's it's unclear to me. He does knock her out and he does Yeah.
3: well i guess i guess that is part of that's part of why i lean towards more that maybe he's not a vampire and maybe he is just a disturbed individual who's being uh enabled by his weirdo older cousin uncle person um you know it's the family secret but it's super disturbing
2: all right we should lastly talk about what ends up leading to his demise which is uh, Martin starts a relationship with the uh, with a housewife who really seems to like him and you know she's sort of uh, you know she wants to entertain herself with this relationship and he's a good listener because whatever. And she makes him into something that he's not. but that relationship starts. And we're tempted to think, well, maybe this is going to sort of settle him down. And in fact, the movie doesn't show us that he he does keep killing people even though, He's in this relationship with her. Uh, and then she's so despairing because it turns out that a love affair with Martin doesn't actually solve the various problems that are getting her down. And so she commits suicide. And it is that suicide, oddly enough, crazily enough, that leads to him, uh, to his demise, uh, uh Drew, why don't you explain to us what finally happens to Martin?
5: Well Martin comes across her body after he has actually <laughs> murdered to Vagrant, uh, for their very brutally he drinks their blood yeah. with a with a broken beer bottle. It's, it's one of the most disturbing images in the whole movie yeah. because it's so visceral. But um when he he calls into the radio show one more time and and you know, just like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And, you know, and, you know, I actually liked her. And, you know, he, he goes to sleep. And then, then the very next thing, he wakes up to see his uncle in the craziest damn coat, I might add, <laughs> uh, standing above him <laughs> with a wooden stake and a mallet, like straight out of a Hammer movie. And he proceeds to drive a stake through his chest. And then the the movie's credits are very interesting they're very they, they do kind of make you think of night of the living dead because you have yeah. this radio chatter where everybody is talking about the count and you see uh kuda working in this garden and of course that we're to assume that this is where, where martin has been laid the rest and yeah. you know it's very easy to think that kuda would go this far because i mean just earlier in the movie we he actually tries to have a a priest perform an exorcism on him so like Cuda, you know, like we get go back into that debate of whether or not he's actually a vampire. Like Cuda does actually believe there's something supernatural about Martin and he thinks that he's totally justified in doing this. And it's well, just,
4: By the way, the priest that he gets to do the exorcism is actually George Romero's father-in-law.
3: <laughs> well, also well, uh, George I mean,
5: that, Romero himself shows up as a as a as a yeah. younger priest. I like yeah. that yeah. I like that priest.
3: The what's interesting is I think this is where if anybody is viewing this as an outsider, or like, I can relate to Martin, I can relate to being an outsider. None of his family, despite the fact that they, that supposedly they know he's an Asperati, et cetera, none of them understand what he could possibly be going through. And yeah. they both shun him, while at the same time enable him, because they have decided, like a lot of dis- dysfunctional families, that, well, he is family, so we should treat him with a certain amount of, uh, you know, hand-holding. But he's yeah. really out there, so we're also going to ostracize him and I think that's where if anybody could say oh i I understand they you know they have this intervention where the intervention is a priest, and he's like you know, hey, so we want him to perform an exorcism on you um in the same way that you would have somebody go, you know you should quit listening to that music or hanging out with those friends or uh well, it's like an watching intervention. these movies or." You know, etc. It's,
4: like, it's like an alcoholic intervention. Yeah,
3: yeah.
5: but but and, uh, for kids, it's usually hemo-holics. for kids but though. Said hemoholics.
3: Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice, but for kids of that era, it would have been. I don't like the music you listen to. I don't think that you you shouldn't watch these movies, uh, you know, stuff like that. And so that's kind of what it it boils down to for, for that character. Um, and, and I get that. And that's, it says, you know, Romero's really good about this kind of commentary. His satirical wit is fantastic across the board uh, up until his death. I think yeah. even with some of the newer movies that aren't as popular, there's something there in each one of them. You just ended up having to dig a little deeper sometime. And I, I, I think this is no exception, actually.
5: I think you also kind of hit on something about whether or not Martin is relatable there is like something about that sort of alienness, like mm-hmm. wh- whether or not obviously you know what he is doing is horrible like so like you're going to feel removed from him and disgust towards him because of that but who among us has not felt like a space alien you know who among us has not felt yeah. removed from other people at some point in their life so sure. I, you know if there is something that you can pity about Martin it's <laughs> that um, I just think the, the, you know, the, the reality that uh, his crime the reality of the crime scenes kind of makes it harder to feel bad for him the same way you might feel bad about say the the lead uh, the character in american werewolf in london which is a similar although much more big budget deconstruction of you know universal monster trope well plus
3: yeah. his ultimate downfall is the fact that he did despite his best interests he he shuns you know his relative who's doesn't he's like no you're cool i don't care that we're related for (laughs) this housewife who he's extremely wary of and he's also told not to kill her so he's been kind of taking you know taking it slow uh and being very cautious and the fact that he loves her or at least cares for her in some way is when he does that, she kills herself and he is blamed for it. Which yeah. is, you know, ex- extremely tragic. But that's his his ultimate downfall is actually when he does care. And yeah, we, we've seen that trope a lot. But as someone who, you know, has some empathy who maybe grew up again with the kind of hey, I'm a space alien. Oh, it looks like I cared about this thing. Oh, then when things go wrong, you're usually way more susceptible to thinking everything sucks now because this one thing i thought was the thing i cared the most about also is messed up yeah uh, and yeah the extent it, it, of really making sad. yourself vulnerable
2: sometimes the unfortunate way of life works sometimes we make ourselves vulnerable and there is no great reward it doesn't turn out for the best you actually do get kicked around that's uh yeah absolutely you know um if this is metaphor you know he takes risks he makes himself he makes himself vulnerable and it turns out he gets kicked in the teeth even worse than he thought that he would um that happens sometimes it's it's amazing uh yeah so
4: i'm really so curious i know we we, should, we kind of got off the topic but i'm really curious about the memories and how much of what he remembers is actually real, if any of it, versus just his fantasy? Because he's got the memory of the um, the exorcism, too. And he doesn't, like, obviously didn't take, <laughs> didn't work. But he's got a memory of a, an exorcism being of uh, in Latin. And I don't know if that's actually something that happened or if he's fantasizing that this this weird kind of uh, exorcism is actually like this romantic, you know, Latin. I mean, I just really, I really would love to know how much of what he sees in black and white is just a fantasy version of what's actually happening versus a memory of what happened in the past. I'm really curious about it, but I don't know that there's an answer.
3: I think that that's what makes it awesome. I think you could take it either way. If he's not a vampire, it's a terrible, tragic fantasy land. If he is, then there's, he's, lives this almost cyclical groundhog yeah. decades where exactly. happening to him that are very similar to things that have happened in the past right, right there's right. so still so tiresome idea. yeah there's so coincidental, i think that he may not be a vampire and he may just be a sociopath yeah. uh, psychopath but in that's i think that's the magic of the movie and i it does it really well you can we can debate this for hours on end I, and, and i think that's the sign of a, a good movie um yeah. despite its budget there's a lot going on here i think romero's great at that he's the master of taking whatever budget he has and not it's, yeah. it's totally different than a corman movie or a bird eye gordon movie he's yeah. he's there to make something that sticks with you and he was always a master of that mm-hmm. i agree i agree let's get our final
2: thoughts and then I want to get to, uh, endorsements. Um, so where did we start? It was, uh, I think it was, do we start with Drew? So I guess, yeah, yeah. Drew, Julia, Tony. So Drew, um, what an interesting film, uh, final thoughts on Martin, and then we'll come back around and see what you have to, to endorse for us this week.
5: Well, uh, I just want to, say one more thing about whether or not Martin is a vampire. Obviously, Romero doesn't want us to have a definitive answer of that, and like Tony's saying, I think that is what makes ultimately this movie such a good conversation piece. I... I think this is probably my favorite non-zombie Romero movie. It's it, it's a chalk a, a talk, coin toss between this and Creepshow. Creepshow's a little more fun, so I watch it more often. But I think this is a really good testament to how talented this guy was. And I'm glad that we, we took a moment as the year is winding down to really remember a type of our genre that we discuss every week on the show. I mean, Romero... Mm-hmm is his fingerprints on this genre, are, they're going to last forever. And I just think that it was great that we were able to, to get in some kind of tribute.
2: That's that's an excellent point. No, thank you very much. Uh, Julia, so uh, final thoughts on Martin, but you're also welcome to, to say anything in general about George
4: Romero. Well, I mean, we have watched, yeah, we've watched like a few of the films, and um, I think something that is true for most of them that I've seen is that they do leave you, they're very unsettling. You know, it's a, you don't walk away from it just kind of, it's not like Chinese food where you're like, oh, that was satisfying, and then five minutes later you're like, wait, what? <laughs> you know, it's more, yeah. um, it sticks with you. And I think that's going to be the case for this film. This is not a film I'm going to forget watching, which is I, saying a lot because I forget most of the films that we watch for this podcast. <laughs> It's like, did we see that already? Um, And so I do think that it'll stick with me. Um, It's very thought-provoking and disturbing. Um, But like I said, it was not something I enjoyed watching, which doesn't, you know, mean it's not good. (laughs) It just means it's not my kind of film that I want to spend my my weekend on. So, yeah. Absolutely.
2: Excellent. Uh, Tony, what are your thoughts?
3: I I think it's a really great film for everything that Romero was trying to do. Um, he does a lot with the budget. He does make you feel somewhat for Martin, despite the fact that you watch him brutally murder and rape <laughs> throughout the movie. Yeah. The fact that he can even conjure up some sympathy uh says a lot for the writing and directing. Um and we you know what he can bring out of the actors and and how good the guy's plays Martin actually is, um, bringing that and playing a kid, being, you know, way older than, than high school kids, um, it really works. It, it is disturbing enough that Martin isn't going to be a film I put into regular rotation, for sure. Um, especially, you know, I've said it before, I tend to watch less and less realistic violence. And this is extremely realistic. I think any of these things, you could have pro- a version of them has probably been on some police blotter somewhere. Yeah. And that's what makes it, I think, harder. Uh, Maybe not as gross as something like perhaps Audition. uh, Yeah. But it's a rough movie in a lot of ways. Um, And, but it's a thought provoking deconstruction. And what Romero has to say, I think, about society and about these characters is. is really interesting. It's it's worth checking out um, if you can get past the really really disturbing parts of it. And if that doesn't sound like something you want to view, um, you know, I, I I'm totally down. <laughs> I agree with you on that as well. Sure. Yeah, I I, I think I agree. I mean, I, I've definitely seen movies that
2: are, and I know you have two twenty movies that are much much rougher uh, than this. But it is. I think this movie could be very, very triggering for somebody who kind of prefers a more fantastic kind of horror, dark shadows-y kind of stuff, anything like that, gothic horror. This is uh, this could be very triggering because it's very, very realistic. You know, so if if sexual assault and uh, and straight up murder are going to be very disturbing. I think you would just stay the hell away from this movie. Um, having well, said that... They are going to be it, disturbing. The
4: question is whether you're going to be able to put up with it. If they're,
2: if they're... Uh, what would be the word? If they're so disturbing as to be, Figuring. you know, really... Figuring. Yeah, uh, uh, if you just you just can't deal with this, I think that that's fair. That's, that's totally fair. You, you know, there's a lot of movies to watch. You don't have to watch this. But uh, I... Found this film to be a very interesting look at the time. I'm fascinated by how much Romero wanted to document the world around him and then put these sort of comments on horror into them. Uh, I think he had a very interesting eye. I, you know, and I, I was never as interested in most of the stuff that Romero was most known for. I, I frankly. You know, I could take or leave most of the zombie stuff. Uh, I did like Dawn of the Dead a lot. We talked for a, 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 about Dawn of the Dead for probably like three hours. So clearly, I appreciated Romero, and I think he was very talented. But I love this early 70s stuff. I think it's very interesting work. So uh, I'm, I'm glad we had a chance to, to talk about this. Um, Let's do endorsements. I'm dying to know. I'm dying to know because, you know, our absolutely most likely, usually the way it works through through the holidays. So I know we're going to talk about it a little bit less. So make it good. I'm just curious what you have to endorse, if you have anything. So uh, because I know everybody's super busy. Um, Drew, uh, what uh, do you have anything to endorse for us this week?
5: I saw a murder on the Oregon Express last mm. week i know that there is a lot of uh, critics that are saying that they find that it is slow and talky um my rebuttal <laughs> I mean, of that they do know what it is right <laughs> <laughs> yeah my rebuttal of that is is that it is uh character driven and thoughtful and i've Thought it was a really great adaptation. Um, I think it's very glamorous and it has extremely witty dialogue. It reminded me a lot of watching uh, a lot of the mystery films that I enjoy from the 30s, like The sin Man. Um, it's a very obviously it's going to be a very very classical mystery. It's it's Agatha Christie. Um, I, I find myself a bit befuddled by some of the the criticisms of the movie. I think I have not been more acutely aware of. Uh, my my shift in in age demographic yeah that when i was when i was watching this movie because there i you know my wife and i were the youngest couple in there everybody else was like probably 50 or or older and uh you know i i i sat down i watched it and i was like there are no monsters in this movie there are no superheroes in this movie i'm watching a movie made for adults (laughs) um (laughs) <laughs> and I I think that, that that's really kind of sad that a movie like that now can't um can't be seen as entertaining because we are so and I like bombastic things like I followed up watching this by watching the Punisher TV show and the Runaways TV show. Um yeah. but I think you would all be doing yourself a favor if you put aside Thor and you put aside Justice League and went and saw this instead. Like I I think <laughs> That is, like, I just, I just think, you know, we get it. We, I like bombast. I will go see those movies eventually. But yeah, it's okay to have something that slows down, and you ac- slows down, and you actually have to listen to what the characters are saying every now and then. And man, I, man, I think there is room for you both. know me. I'm the king of slow,
2: and and, and <laughs> I, I uh, yeah. Uh, go ahead, Tony. What are you gonna say? I'm
3: gonna tie on my onion belt on this one. And just it comes from a book. What, like. <laughs>
5: yeah i know right
3: like i i just just look at the thing it comes from a book oh no you know i watched my dinner with andre and there was just far too much talking did you (laughs) realize it's about that's what it's about i don't ever want to like it's it's, it's not a movie for me but holy fuck just yeah seriously world like this is where we're at oh man I'm glad I don't read reviews because I think I would just, I don't know.
4: I maybe, love reading. Maybe
3: we had a good run. Maybe we should just fall into the sun. I mean, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> Maybe not for this, I, just this movie, but this idea, this discourse of, oh, it's too slow and talky. It, there was another movie that was an adaptation. Look at that. Like, Read something. Good Lord. Yeah. Oh,
5: I... Just, I I love film criticism. I think it's a dying art form because no one, no one knows how to do it properly anymore. I post about that all the time on my Facebook. But that's what I'm talking page. about. Yeah, but, like I, and this friend of mine finds that as well,
3: by the way. And that's what I, that's more of what I'm talking about. Like, just no one, no one is objective silence. anymore.
5: But the, the movie, the end, the end. It's saying about this movie. This is a movie that fetishizes both intellect and wit and we need far more movies like that so you know movies that aren't just about biceps and explosions even though i like those kinds of movies too i'm done now if it you know if it wasn't
3: like right when this podcast was going on i would go right now because i want to support a movie about it it's just like like, as bombastic as it is, Jason and I talk about uh, science ninja team Gatchaman, which, by the way, is, is yeah. not talky. <laughs> but I often right. think, like, the idea of science ninjas, I wish we had more science ninjas. <laughs> yes. <laughs> or something, something like that. And I agree, it's it's the idea of film criticism Unless, like, I, I have a good friend... Uh, sean smithson and he's constantly opining when he sees a critic and he'll post it and he he goes off more than i do like just read get some kind of context get some kind of history i
2: think what you're looking for is content but but for me tony it's really the the issue isn't the critics it's not it's not some person writing for the new yorker that you have to worry about who won't understand the context of of, uh, of Murder on the Orient Express. It's somebody posts the trailer of Murder on the Orient Express on Facebook or on Twitter and a bunch of morons, and I mean no disrespect if your friends are morons, <laughs> but a bunch of morons post, I don't know, this seems to just have a bunch of people talking. That's stupid. Those people are idiots. I, I, I just, I don't even know how else to say it.
5: <laughs> like, like look, if you're just into visuals, the train is, is a character in this movie the clothes (laughs) are characters in this movie there are beautiful things in this movie that if like you actually like if visuals are your thing you know there's still stuff that play to that it's just not constantly like bopping around like a kid that has just taken here's the thing
2: is there in fact a place here's my question is there really a place and i think the answer is yes for movies that create different moods than the ones that are the prime like like the main mood of a big hit film today is of constant frenetic uh uh, stimulation you know whether it's a brilliant like comedic superhero thing like thor ragnarok or whatever, you're stimulated all the time. But there's a lot of movies that we've watched, the four of us, things like I Walked with a Zombie, or, or we talked a little while ago about Disappearance at Hanging Rock, or whatever. And those movies create different moods, sometimes of like unease, or sometimes of sleepiness. And it can actually be good for And I'm not saying that Express does this, but I mean where a film literally is doing what it's supposed to be doing and what it's creating is a sensation of dreaming. That is something that you, you need a little bit of sophistication to be able to recognize that the art is doing that on purpose. And well, when, you're, um,
5: yeah. when you're talking about a mystery, a yeah. movie where you have <laughs> to like actually listen to the dialogue, yes, and like try to work it out through your own brain, it's actually supposed to be kind of an exercise yeah. in thinking. You're trying to solve the mystery, <laughs> while the detective is trying to solve the mystery. That's what it's supposed to be doing. Like, um, I really, I don't talk about this a lot but i really love a good mystery like i i used to work in a mystery bookstore like it, it when i was you know i i went through a phase where like 99% of the books i read were detective books like you know i'm kind of out of that phase but i have a lot of affection for that genre and so i feel like when i was reading a lot of these reviews and seeing like comments about this film i was like you just don't get this genre yeah you know like i i I hate being that guy because like i i'm not trying to play like gatekeeper or whatever like but like this is murder on the orient express this Mm. is one of the archetypical mystery stories with one of the like it's just it's just astounding to
3: me again i just you hope that people who are going to critique have, and maybe it's dying out, context yeah. and understanding about what they're critiquing. To me, when yeah. you say that, oh, although I have figured out how to fix this, I haven't seen the movie, but if you want to bring it back around to the modern era, when they do the reveal of what the mystery, you know, solve the crime, what you do is you make sure to go in slow-mo and go, Walk, 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 and, kind of like that. and you'll totally bring people back in and they're going, to, oh, well, it was really good until the end they did the reveal and then <laughs> and then we'll totally solve it and they'll be back for that. Yeah, totally
4: I want to say, say something to this. I think that we spend a lot of our lives wishing everyone else was into the stuff we're into and we just kind of have to accept that not everybody's into the same things
1: so it's fine
4: to say uh i love mysteries i love movies that are true to the novel i love to read novels or whatever but if somebody else doesn't want to go to the theater to see those things i think that's fine now i do agree that if you're going to write (laughs) if you're going to write a a like if you're going to be a a critic and and write an article then you should be a person who appreciates the genre if you're going to get into the genre, but um, I say that being a person who's really not into horror movies and I'm continuing horror movies, so well, I guess I'm kind of a hypocrite. But, um, but you know, that's the thing. So I think, I, I, I did not see the film yet. I'm definitely planning to see it. I'm looking forward to it. it I there's some said,
5: deviations from the novel, just FYI. I'm sure. Yeah, I, but I, I'm just I, saying, I,
4: like, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to it because I, I like that kind of thing. But I wouldn't fault somebody who doesn't like, I wouldn't say, if you don't like a mystery, go see it anyway, because you're not going to enjoy yourself. Rather, no. I would think, if just go see what you'll enjoy, we tend to and this is like i say not this is an exception because i'm going to see it, but we tend to not see the slower, talky kind of pictures in the theater because it's, you're spending so much money to go to the theater that we kind of save that for the movies that are visually bombastic, like you said. Huge but I'm movies. saying
5: this is. But I'm saying this does have visuals that are worth seeing. Yeah, and so we will. Screen. Yeah, we'll see it anyway. It is a beautiful movie. We're
4: just excited to see it, but um, but we haven't yet. But but I I do tend to favor the the um, the superhero films and the like Star Wars type films in the theater more than the others. Um, that being said, we went and saw this weekend uh, "Coco," which is the Disney film about the Day of the Dead, and it was also very beautiful and very fun to see on a big screen because of all the amazing, you know, just just amazing visual effects. And it's a really neat story. Um, our one of our uh, often get or frequent guest um, podcasters, if you will. Uh, David Bowles is an expert on all things Mexican culture, and so he um, had a lot to say about what is true about this film and what is not as much, but but he really liked it. He says, however, that people in Mexico and in Mexican um, communities in Texas and other places are furious that they stuck this frozen short in front of the movie oh. because oh, yes. um because but they I said absolutely. you know the people are going to see their culture and instead they're forced to watch you know northern europeans celebrate the holidays but <laughs> we personally loved the the short as well because it's a really heartwarming story about how family is what you make it and um and so I th- I thought it was lovely, but but I totally respect that there are people who are like you know they could have done something that was also culturally you know appropriate for the people that they're trying to to reach with this. I don't know, but anyway, it was really neat, and uh, I definitely recommend it. Um, the matriarch of the family that's because a lot of the characters are actually ancestors, you know, the ghosts and or skeletons. And um, anyway, the matriarch ancestor reminded me so much of my grandmother because she's just this badass businesswoman who just you know, took adversity and just went, um, screw you, I'm going to make make a life that's going to be worth, um, you know, worth emulating and everything. And so her whole family basically takes after her. And it's really interesting uh, story as far as that goes. Um, lots of beautiful music and neat, just neat concepts. So I love that. That's one of my endorsements. The other endorsement I have is, is a re-endorsement of something I had endorsed earlier that I want everybody to come back to if they haven't been. And that's that Dear David story on Twitter, which is scary as hell. <laughs> it's just so scary. It's such a great um, story. And as people have been saying, I've been reading some articles about it. People are saying either this guy is the most brilliant storyteller ever or his Life is scary as hell, and I have to agree with that because it's just, it's terrifying. So if you haven't or if you did look at it when I recommended it back uh, a couple months ago, but you haven't looked at it since, go back and look at, at the Dear David Twitter, <laughs> Twitter story because <laughs> it's fascinating. Awesome. So that's mine.
2: Wow. Excellent. Thank you. Tony, what about you? What do you got?
3: Um, I got a couple things, but let me wrap up. So I agree with Julia that you shouldn't see things... Like, if, that's not, if you don't enjoy it, it's not your obligation to go see it. However, if you're a critic and you're complaining that there's too much talking in your mystery movie, if your mystery movie is too mystery movie, you're kind of that's kind of a, on you, I think. Like, this horror movie was too scary or this drama had too much drama. interpersonal drama. Like, th- come on come on yeah. um although i have heard really awesome things about coco and most of my friends um a bunch of my friends actually uh, went to go see it in spanish which i thought was really cool because and they really really uh enjoyed that there was representation that it felt like family that they knew all of this sounds like they did out of the park i have seen nothing but good stuff except <laughs> many 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 friends of mine have also gone why do i have to watch this crap short like yeah come on people and they also pointed out that the pixar shorts are good where disney shorts tend to not be as good and that's what they were also rallying against although
2: although doesn't that sound a little convenient i mean i i've been running into hipster pixar fanboys for like 20 years now and, and 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 yeah, 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 they hate Disney and they love Pixar. And all of this just seems so bizarre to me, like at a distance. It reminds me of the, sometimes you wander into like a, you know a uh, uh, you know like a, a jazz video on the internet and you'll find people in the comment section arguing amongst themselves about who played a better version of stolen moments and you're like you guys are arguing about jazz on the internet nobody else cares and i i i always feel that way whenever whenever pixar people start beating up on disney but
3: this, so you're not wrong <laughs> however the people i'm talking about actually were legit they like both okay and I mean, one friend of mine actually learned English uh, through Disney videos. Like he has, he loves Disney, right? This yeah, yeah, yeah. felt very egregious to him. And okay, you know, no, fair, yeah, and and I can totally see that. I, so, I can, so, as you know, as I rallied that you should be more, you know, read more, etc. Both of my <laughs> endorsements this week are actually video games. So you can call me hypocrite or whatever. However, <laughs> um, the two that I've seen, because they were on sale, I'm late to the game for a, a game called Horizon Zero Dawn, and the expansion pack just came out. But it is a post-apocalyptic world where some kind of apocalypse has happened. You, tribalism is back, uh, complete with wooden forts and you know dreadlocks and uh, tribal face painting. But you're fighting robots. Uh, robot horses robot ostriches robot uh cats so far like you know saber tooth tiger kind of thing so it's as if you're in a caveman movie except you're fighting robots and the cinematics are fantastic it's i've been playing so much of it over the long weekend um i totally swept up awesome female protagonist uh really good dialogue the people who made horizon they knocked it out of the park the other one that's on sale for half off was yakuza zero which is the latest of the yakuza games and if you've ever just wanted to be in a crime drama as the bad guy even doing the mundane stuff you know collecting money and you know Enforcing your turf when young punks come in and want to extort people, and they're not—they're the people you should be extorting. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. You can spend hours and hours uh, working your way up the yakuza ladder. Ladder, I mean. So I—it's—it's it's actually pretty good if you want to basically have come home from your day job and work a crime ring. Job, <laughs> which not it's not for everyone, but I thought it was. I got a recommendation. Like I said, it was half off this weekend on a sale, like Black Friday digital sale, which I think is still good. But, uh, that's what I'm. But Horizon, hands down, Jason. If you get a chance to look at it, I know you know as a writer who works on video games. If you want to see how to intro a game, you know, find the video at least of a Let's Play and watch like the first I don't know hour or so, and they they really put you there. It's it's pretty fantastic. Wonderful.
2: Wow. Um, this has all been really good stuff. Uh, all right. My endorsements actually are one thing that is very current and one thing that is... Current if you have a Kindle, but uh, has been around for a while. So uh, I've been reading, and I'm not finished reading it, but I've certainly read enough to endorse it, uh, the book Julia, no relation to my lovely wife, Julia, the book Julia by Peter Straub. Um, Peter's, it is a, This is a horror book that um, Peter Straub wrote back in 1975, and it is just a fantastic gothic ghost story about this woman who's grieving the loss of her daughter who moves into a big old house and and soon has to solve a ghost mystery and it's scary i've already I, i'm if it's anything like the movie i'm already spoiled for some of the story but you know uh, the, there is in fact a film that goes by several names starring Mia Farrow called The Haunting of Julia or a couple other things. But uh, yeah, Julia by Peter Straub. I'm reading that. Also, there's a podcast that you should check out, especially if you're into music. Chris Malanphy, M-O-L-A-N-P-H-Y. Chris Malanphy is a music writer who has a newish podcast called Hit Parade. And every episode, and they do it, it, I can't tell how often. They seem to come like once a month. Every episode is an extremely intricately researched and beautifully cut uh, story about a different musician or, or a couple of musicians. So, for instance, he did an episode that linked the careers of... George Michael and Elton John, and he did an episode about um, the linkages between Tom Petty and Prince, and another episode about the history of the charity mega single, you know, the the big you know singles where all the stars would get together and and sing for some charity or another. They are brilliant. They're clever. I love them, and and, and I think you should definitely check out this show. It's called Hit Parade. It's a podcast, and it just picks a particular uh, music topic and just follows it and plays, like, clips of different songs if you want to hear, like... Like, I think one of my favorite ones traced the song Red, Red Wine, which is, I have to admit, not a song that I ever gave much thought to. But it traced... It was like, how did this song become a number one hit? And Red, Red Wine, I learned, even though it's the UB40 single with that had kind of a reggae sound it was actually originally a neil diamond pop song from the 1960s that didn't go anywhere and then it got covered by a reggae group from the uk i believe in you know a couple years later and then ub40 covered the reggae version and then had a hit with the reggae version and then he takes that and he goes off to sh- to talk about a whole bunch of other songs just like that where the the song kind of goes nowhere and then somebody like does something with it and it, and it takes off cool stuff so it's the hit parade i recommend that so um,
3: yeah I forgot one thing that I would be remiss uh, yeah. about music. So our, if you are in Austin or if you are around and you listen to this podcast locally, uh, Rise From Fire, my wife and I's band, has our CD release yeah. party uh, this coming up weekend, December 2nd, which is also Drew and I will be at a Comic-Con in Round Rock as well. Oh my gosh. So yep. It's uh, straight from the com- from the Round Rock Comic-Con to our CD release party in Pflugerville um, I'll post the, uh, event if anybody uh, wants to come check us out, but yeah. So after all of these years having met, cause Ray and I met, and then not too long after that, I think I met Jason. So, uh, it's taken all this time to finally get a CD out, but, uh, here we are. Oh, I wish I could go
2: to this release party. Well, I'll be there in spirit. And I, I really, I, it, it sounds fantastic. I'm sorry that I'm missing. God, <laughs> we darn it. Um, you should like float like a camera just around the place and and have people talk to it and actually yeah you should it's live stream the fine. party.
3: Yeah, live streaming at cool. I'll have to see if you can do that. Actually,
2: that'd be interesting. <laughs> it's not a bad idea at all. <laughs> oh, Curse of Osiris. I, I, I wrote for the Destiny two uh, expansion pack Curse of Osiris and that's out in like ten days. So. <laughs> so oh, everybody at work will be playing
3: that. So that's awesome.
2: <laughs> So, uh, okay. Um, gosh, I'm so excited that we had a chance to talk about Martin. W- w- you know, having take a couple of weeks off, it gets tough during the holidays. But if we're going to talk about anything, Martin is, is definitely a good one. Um, and uh, uh, also, if you're listening, Tony and I will also be recording an interview this week with, uh, with one of the executives from Shout Factory TV and find out what they're all about. I can't wait for that conversation. It's going to be awesome. Uh, if you're listening and you're enjoying the show, leave reviews. Leave comments on the Facebook page. Come like the Facebook page. Let us know what you think, and we totally want to hear more recommendations. We've got some stuff coming up after the holidays that's actually completely based on recommendations from uh, from listeners, and uh, and we love doing that. So uh, thank you, everybody. Have a fantastic evening, and uh, we we can't wait to to talk to you again. We'll see you on the on the page. Bye, everybody. Bye.
4: Bye.
1: Plus.